Hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer Podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. All right, quarantine episodes keep on coming. We're all dealing with cabin fever and relationships. So yeah, here goes another one, Albert. This one should be fun. Um, I'm really excited about this. I, I don't know what to. I'm going to say on behalf of all the straight men on the world, but apparently I'm representing them today. So Albert, tell us a little about this. Yes. Well, first of all, how's your, how's your last couple of days going? Your week? I know you got a lot of stuff going on and uh, you're hanging in, you're doing all right. I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging there. It's been, it's been a lot. Uh, my wife kind of moved into the office. So my creative space, my little Zen space has been invaded. Um, and I'm back to work online at home too. So we're both kind of like working in the same spot and, you know, we work together and then we live together and then we sleep together and we're always together. And <laughs> today's been nice. Cause like, it was nice enough to go outside. I got some fresh air. I'm talking to you. I've talked to my friend, Matt. So it's nice kind of getting a little, uh, variation in the days. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. We've, we've been having a very, um, cold, hold on one sec, a very cold, um, Springtime so far in the Hudson Valley. Sorry, I was multitasking in a very bad way because I was trying to turn off something so it would not make noise during our talk. Uh, anyway, it's been like high 20s at night in the last couple of nights. Woke up uh, Saturday to snow. It was Everything was covered in snow, thick snow on the trees. You could not believe it looked like total winter wonderland. And by five o'clock, everything was melted and it was bright green spring. It was the craziest. I've never seen a transformation in weather um, and it was hard not to read into that as an allegory for where we're at in our daily lives. You know, there are days where, and moments of the days that are the winter of our discontent. They, they could not be worse. Everything is fucked up. We have to listen to, you know, bullshit on television with politicians not being able to speak straight about what's really going on or, you know, people are being proud of, uh, you know, uh, not paying attention to rules and regulations that other people are stupid, too stupid to follow, are, are stupidly following, you name it. And then suddenly little simple things happen that make us realize, hey, life ain't so bad and we're lucky and we're, you know, we've got food on the table. We've got a roof over our heads. We've got other things going on in our lives that we, we should be grateful for. So that little, that was what it was like yesterday. Just like that's life in a nutshell. It's winter and spring and it's all it's all part of the all part of our experience as human beings to deal with all the seasons of our life. Anyway, there you go. Yeah, definitely. Well, I can certainly relate to that. I've had some ups, some downs, some left, some right, some turnarounds, some fall on your heads all in the last week. So, I I feel you on that. But uh, I've been today, digging your feed though. Your feed, you're you're doling out the positivity in your in your your uh, denim mindset feed. So. Keep it up, dude. It's really very really fun and impressive. And I'm not sure if our guest is following you, but we'll make sure he follows you after, <laughs> after we're done today. So yeah, you want to introduce our, introduce our guy? Yeah, here we go. So the official introduction for Nicholas Pond. Described by the Boston Globe as one of the world's most remarkable singers, American tenor Nicholas Pond is increasingly recognized as an artist of distinction. Praised for his keen intelligence, captivating stage presence, and natural musicianship, he performs regularly with the world's leading orchestras and opera companies. Also an active recitalist, in 2010, he co-founded the Collaborative Arts Institute of Chicago to promote song and vocal chamber music, where he serves as the artistic director. Nick, it's so great to have you on. Welcome to the show. 
Thank you. It's so great to be here. I sound so fancy. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Um, Nick, um, Nick and I, um, we're going to call him Nick because it's officially on his website. You would go to Nicholas, Nicholas Pond, uh, tenor. Um, Nick and I know each other in, in multiple ways through personal friends. Um, we work together. He's one of my clients. Um, we're in this, obviously in the same industry and, and um, we're also, uh, you know, we're, we've got a lot of bonds of friendship between us uh, on a number of levels. We, we enjoy talking about life. We always get on the phone and talk philosophically about what, is, what does it all mean? He's definitely one of those friends where I share a lot of my thoughts about, about what we're going through. And, you know, Nick and I are super close. And there's a couple of things that Nick and I have discussed um, over, you know, the time of our friendship that I thought might be fun for us to talk about chatting with us from beautiful San Francisco. It looks like it's sunny and, and gorgeous out there. You've been obviously out in California under one of the first states to really kind of go heavy duty on the lockdown. What, what's it been like for you? It's been pretty intense. I mean, it's cr actually pretty crazy. My boyfriend and I planned to move in together the week that we were ordered to shelter in place. So we already had this pre-existing plan to move in with each other, but you know, now we're like locked in our house together and um, it's working out really well, thank God, but it's been a real deep dive into cohabitation. Well, if it had been terrible, uh, he could not have escaped. So it was actually a great start to your relationship. Yeah, exactly. Well, I met Noah, actually. He's a really sweet guy. We met last uh, summer, I think, in the summer when you made a famous rigatoni bolognese that we ate for leftovers for days on end. It was delicious. Um, so you travel the world. Obviously, that's part of your your. Uh, of your work experience that's kind of unique. You go to different places. What is it like for you just to be in a place now? You've been in a, how long you've been in the apartment? Uh, I mean, you know, six weeks maybe. It's, this is the longest I have been in one place in at least five years. I mean, normally I'm hopping on a plane once a week to go to a different city. You know, I'm, I'm never really in one place more than two weeks straight at a time. Um, so it's, I'm kind of liking it a little bit. I have to say it's really nice to kind of have some time at home, which is maybe scaring me a little bit because I also really like my job. So, you know. <laughs> is that a, is um, that a constant, like really powerful uh, uh, fault line in a way between liking your home and knowing that you have to be away from it a lot? Or is that kind of like enriched the, the meaning of both of those things in your life? I think both. I mean, it certainly enriches the meaning of, you know, th this experience is going to make it so much sweeter when I go back on the road to make music again. Um, so yeah, it's, it was a strange realization the other day to sort of say to him, you know, I miss you picking me up at the airport because it sounds strange to be like, I miss being apart. But it's, you know, there's that whole distance makes the heart grow fonder thing that's a regular aspect of our lives that we're not getting right now. And, you know, it's both things are good. Um, but it's a, it was a really bizarre realization the other day. Yeah, it's always always been tough for me. Um, business travel was never easy for me, I have to admit. I am a classic homebody. As much as I love people, as much as I love being in, in different places, I don't know, at some point, I just became a real homebody, and, and uh, I, I get kind of blue. I mean, as soon as I arrive in the other place, I feel better, but the thought of leaving my home really makes me a little kooky and a little depressed, but... Um, Anyway, I, I, so I've always admired and, and looked up to you because you would just say, oh, okay, I'm going to Europe and I'll be back in four months. And I'd just be like, wow, four months. I can't imagine what it would be like to just take off for four months. Um, 
just to give Adam a little background, one of the one of the real reasons that uh, two two topics I really want to talk a little bit about today is just about this idea of, of vulnerability, which is sort of a topic of, of our show, uh, and, and how that in, you know how you define that and how that impacts how you approach making art and what it means to have as a life of an artist. But I also also want to talk about um, you know just the whole gay experience to a certain degree because you said I actually want to start with that. Um, because you said something to me that's been a, almost a theme throughout my my life in in recent years, and it's definitely been a theme in my in my Instagram connecting with with guys. This whole idea of that you're always coming out—that's uh, a phrase that you said, and it it really resonated with me because you know it's been what 25 years since you know longer since I've been out, and still there are moments where I feel like. I'm not, and I'm telling someone who I've just met. Tell me wh- where where did that phrase come from in your own life experience, and what does it what does that mean to you? I'm o- always coming out. So I came out of the closet when I was like 15 or 16 to most of the people in my life. So that was like the mid 90s, and um, but the, I didn't. I waited a long time to tell my family. I waited you know, a few more years after that. And then I came out to my family a few years later when I was in college. And there's just something about that that experience where we hear a lot of gay men talk about when they came out and it's like this, it's discussed like it's this one moment in time. And it's just, that's not how it is. I mean, you're perpetually, it's a process that never stops for you because you're constantly revealing yourself to people. And I mean, you know, just that little, my experience of, you know, friends and, um, you know, schoolmates first, and then a few years later, uh, family. It, it, was, it was a process. It's not, it was not one moment. And it's something that I, I just always feel like every time I meet somebody new, there's, you know, even saying something as simple on a podcast right now, like, oh, my boyfriend just moved in with me. I mean, that's an act of coming out. Like, you know, I think by default, people assume still that, you know, people you're talking to are heterosexual unless they're like purses falling out of their mouth. And, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a revealing of yourself. And it's, it always feels on some level a little a little vulnerable, sometimes more so, sometimes less so. It depends on where you are. It depends on who you're asking. Um, you know, if I'm sitting at a, at a donor dinner with a bunch of Republican donors who happen to donate to whatever, co- you know, um, event that I've just performed at, like, you know, that feels a little bit more intense than, you know, meeting somebody in a bar in downtown San Francisco. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Adam. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember Albert, you said that on the time I interviewed you is always coming out. So yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's not the same for me, but I mean, revealing that, you know, I'm Jewish or I'm adopted. It's not, I can really relate to the, it's not one moment in time. You're always kind of like saying that. And for every like new person that you meet and kind of like let into your life, kind of like let into your circle, there's sort of that vulnerability of revealing, you know, more and more parts of yourself. Um, Nick, my question for you is like, when did you feel, when did you start feeling um, 
way more like comfortable or like feeling out the situations? Have you, did you notice that there was like a time in your life where you're like, okay, I'm way more comfortable with this because at first, you know, you waited years before you told your family. Um, so, I mean, that's a pretty big gap between, you know, Hey, like telling her, you know, a best friend. I mean, in those teenage years, I definitely get it. Your friends are like your family. Um, but now later in your life, uh, have you noticed there's like a different feeling out process or a different, um, you know, kind of time or, uh, you know, knowing this person that you're able to reveal that or, you know, come out or share? Um, so when I was a teenager, it, it just sort of felt, I remember the, the reason I ended up coming out when I did was because I was at, I was at an arts camp and, um, there was another person, there was another camper there at the time who was out. And meeting someone who was my age and who was out and happy and, um, you know, had friends and was being their authentic selves with no apologies and seeing that they were still being supported by a community around them, that was a first for me because I wasn't sure about that. When I was, you know, back at home in Michigan, at, you know, at my at school, I never saw, and I mean, obviously there was no example to look up to. So a lot of it was about seeing that example and then um, following suit and finding the courage to do that. And then after that, it's, you know, leading up to my parents, it just became a burning need to do it. I mean, you can only have a sort of, a, a, a certain level of relationship with anybody if you're gonna hide part of yourself from them. And my family's really important to me. And so it was really important to me to, to be honest and be open and let them know who I am and be able to share my life with them all of my life. Um, and then now I really feel like it's a responsibility. And in those times when I feel maybe more uncomfortable than not, I almost feel like I'm more assertive with myself. I mean, more aggressive with myself about making sure that I am open about that pretty upfront and make it known because it's not some, it's something that if we want it to be normalized, we have to normalize it. And part of doing that is by being out and being open about who you are. And, you know, sometimes I guess, I guess what I'm saying is the more challenge in the more challenging situations, I tend to be a little bit more aggressive about it than perhaps in, you know, regular life because it feels like this conscious decision to kind of, you know, bear my soul. <laughs> right on. Well, thank you for that. Well, you guys have both, I mean, it, there's a connection here in a way too, because when I uh, started doing my, my Instagram feed, um, you know, Adam was someone I told fairly soon uh, about being, my, about my being gay. And um, I mean, but it wasn't immediate. It was a couple of months, I think that we were talking before I told him, but that experience um, and you're telling me the story you just told me, Nick, combined in a way. And now I'm feeling now a little bit uh, of what you just described, sort of an urgency to be more just upfront and just be like, why not? Just say it. If, if you're going to, just what you said, if you want it to be normalized, then you have to treat it that way. Uh, you have to, which is a, a tricky one because the real, I guess one of the reasons I wanted to talk today was just, I sometimes feel a little bit, and this is a little bit our age difference, maybe, um, 
a little bit like, oh, um, am I trying to get people's approval? Do I need somebody else to approve of who I am? And uh, is that why I'm nervous? Like, if I'm, if I'm, am I nervous because if they don't respond the way that I want, I'm not going to have their approval, and therefore that I, you know, and so that that's something that plays upon my my own psyche, where I'm really trying to be more sort of like really truly believe, hey, I'm comfortable. I this is who I am. Period. And I don't need anybody's approval. And really and truly, I won't care if someone says, "Oh, sorry, dude, I can't. I don't want to deal with you." I'm I'm just wondering. I don't know. Do you do you feel in any way, Nick, like you're sometimes like, "Hey, I, I'm wondering if I'm going to have this person's approval by when I tell them." I'm always wondering that, and it's you know, it's um, it's interesting as a singer because I spend so much time. Um, you know, receiving instruction from like a conductor or a director or, you know, whomever it's, there's, there's a certain aspect to people pleasing in that regard. And yet at the same time, you know, singer, you're, as much as you're receiving instruction, you're also an artist. And so part of that is about um, expressing yourself and finding the courage to do that. And without um, letting go of the fear of what people think. And it's a kind of, it's a sort of tug of war between those two forces all the time. And when it comes to being open about, um, you know, being gay, yeah, it, it's, it can be really difficult. And I care a lot about what people think too. And I want to be liked and I want to be approved of. And I think the thing that I keep, I always come back to, and it's constant process. I go through it every single time when I feel uncomfortable about this is if someone's going to react to me, be, that with discomfort or disdain or, you know, just some sort of, some version of the spectrum of homophobia, I don't need that person to like me. That's about them and their faults. And it, it's taken a long time and it still takes a long time sometimes to be in that place and remind myself of that. But the, the, the thing about making yourself vulnerable in that way and being open about who you are and honest about who you are is that some people may not like it and some people will not like it. And although that opens yourself up to being hurt possibly, it also shows you who people are that you need in your life. Definitely. And what I'm kind of hearing as the theme uh, between you and Albert right now is leaders go first. And it sounds like you, you both are kind of leading the way for the younger generation. Because for me, I mean, you know, there's kind of like three generations right here. For me, it was much less of a, a big deal. Um, but in the, you know, the 90s, way different story, you know, like the the language that was used between, you know, pretty much everyone was very different than, you know, 2020 right now. Um, and, and that was 30 years, you know, or 20 years, you know, 30 years looking at that. But being accountable and saying like, hey, this is 100% me and I'm doing it shows that there's not only, you know, bravery and courage, but also the, you know, willingness to accept rejection and failure. So uh, that's very commendable. So thank you for at least giving that to, to other people to use because that's what's needed to really push this subject forward is strength, but also um, the ability to fail and the ability to say like, hey, this person's just going to hate me because of who I am. I need to accept that for myself and I don't need them to accept me. Yeah. It takes a lot of strength to be there, but I mean, it's like a muscle. You have to just keep working it out. 
Totally. I like that analogy because we're finding that theme um, with certain other subjects like empathy. I remember we talked with Ryan Beck, the dancer, and he talked about empathy being a muscle that we work out. And, you know, it's probably uh, kindness and love and all kinds of wonderful uh, ephemeral things that we can't fit, you know, actually hold in our hands as a physical thing. Uh, a lot of them are invisible muscles. They are, you know, we, we uh, compassion, you name it. Um, there are things that we, we get better at by doing them. So I guess, you know, it's, it's kind of our duty to try to inspire people to believe that they have value to the point of caring to develop them as muscles. And in a way, they have, they have to believe that those things in some abstract way have value. And, and that, I think that's, that's a hard thing, actually, to argue to people, but it's really the only way. Like, why should I be compassionate? Well, if you give compassion to others, then you'll, people will treat you with compassion. That sounds like a pretty obvious reason to be compassionate. You know, do you need more, uh, do you need more uh, explanation than that? Um, anyway, uh, one, one of the things that earlier on, uh, Adam, when you talked about uh, being ad adopted, did was what was your uh, did what was your feeling about telling that to someone was it the same kind of feeling of oh i i'm not like the other people it, it's kind of like oh other people who aren't adopted will never know what it's like to be adopted so i i'm like the other person is that kind of part of that yeah it's um it's really strange because like albert you're it's like i'm italian i do this italian stuff and my mom is this way and like people know what Italian people are and, you know, Nick is Greek and um, Chinese. So people know like there are cultures like that. And I'm just like, I'm me, I guess I'm American. Like I don't have, um, you know, any like culture other than just being American. I'm adopted. My parents raised me Jewish. Like, you know, I, I have this weird kind of, you know, not real thing. They're like, well, you know, you got to be something. What are you? Are you like English, French, you know, German, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, I don't know. Um, I, I don't have that. Like I'm, I'm Jewish. Does that count? Um, and yeah, it's just kind of weird because people are like, oh yeah, like Irish pride, you know, St. Patrick's day, um, all, all sorts of stuff. And I'm just like, cool. Yeah. Sweet, sweet guys. And yeah, I just, I don't, I don't have that. So it, it feels really weird. Um, when people talk about their cultural or, you know, ethnic backgrounds and I'm just like, yeah, um, I don't really have one. And I've kind of been like assimilated to, uh, the Ghanaian culture because, you know, my wife is from Ghana and most of the people that are over at the house and that I talk to here in like Pittsburgh and in my life, um, are Ghanaian or, and speak tree. So it's like, it's, it's weird. And I'm just like, always that different person. Um, you know, I'm like the one white guy in the photo or I'm, you know, the one Jewish guy of the group, or I'm the one adopted person of a set of people. It's, it, I don't know. I've always thought of myself as the special case, um, just because I, I don't see a whole lot of other people like me and it's, it's just different. And I don't, I really don't have a way to explain it other than, um, just kind of feeling, you know, just different and just at the very end of it, um, just being okay with my differences because I'm never going to be able to really like, who's going to be a, uh, you know, straight white guy who's adopted, who's in an interfaith and interracial relationship in Western Pennsylvania. You know, 
there's there's none, none of those out here. So it's just, you know, the okay and ability to say, you know what, this is who I am. This is how I was raised. I got a really, really good role that died being adopted and brought up the way I was. So um, I'm just going to accept who I am and, and go on with it because there's nothing else I can do other than accept who I am. That's pretty impressive that you've been able to do that, though. I mean, it's, I think, you know, being gay, being white, being black, being, you know, uh, immigrants, being, you know, all these, being of a different religion. I mean, there's so many ways in which people feel othered and, Mm -hmm. you know, like they're on the outside looking in in some way. I think there's a lot of possibility and potential for connection in that place. And a lot of people... I'd say most people really struggle with, you know, this idea of being, of finding self-acceptance like that. And that's, I commend you for being able to find that kind of comfort. It's. Well, you use the phrase, uh, Adam, a special case. I mean, in a way, there's kind of like this unity of special cases. Uh, You know, if you actually can make a connection as a special case, it, it really doesn't even matter any of the details of the background. Um, we are connected by, by well, the, the word you could use really just is individuality, that we really are all very much our own person, no matter how much we belong to a group or a subset, we are individuals. And you know, I like to think of people like, certainly like you, Adam, because I don't want to think too much individually about myself in this case, but like, you're like the man of the future. You're like, you're like the way we should be in the future, where maybe hopefully in the future, there's going to be a little less identity about about all these uh, you know minutia about where we came from and the details of our individual cultures and whatever and we'll be more focused on values and aspirations what kind of people do we want to be in a way you know, that's kind of that's the direction I wish that all of us were were ultimately headed um, but anyway uh, I, I really appreciate that you know because it's easy for me when I talk to you be like oh it must be real easy to be a straight white dude and then Adam's like Oh, reminding me like, dude, you don't really don't take anything for granted about my life because like, wait, wait a sec. It's very easy for me to not realize, hey, Adam's got some some other things that he's dealing with. So thanks for thanks for reminding me of that. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, And when I tell you that English is not the most spoken language in this house, like that is very, very true. Um, But one thing that's really gotten me through a lot of that and really helped me with that self-acceptance is the realizing and kind of the, the mantra of the one thing that we all have in common, every single one of us on this planet, is that we're all different. So that's kind of what's, what's really just driven me through this and, and pushed through the harder parts of you know not being accepted and having difficult situations is, hey, the one commonality we all have is that we're all different. And we need to embrace and accept that and just continue on because, you know, sometimes just like magnets, they're either going to attract or repel. And we just got to find the ones that, that we attract. So Nick, now that I have you here and we're talking like this, you and I, you know, we're friends. We talk all the time, but we've, we've never been in this setting. Um, I, I want to go back to Michigan. Uh, you're, I mean, coming out for me, like you said, what, you were in your teens or late teens? I was like 15 or 16. Yeah. But for me, that is like, like epically early because I didn't really come out until like 25 maybe. So uh, to me, someone who came out when they're 15 or 16 is like, wow, 
you're, you're like a real pioneer. I'm just wondering, were you afraid, afraid of coming out in, in, you know, in the environment where you grew up, uh, where, was there still sort of a feeling of, Hey, I'm, I might not be treated very nicely. Um, what was it like in Michigan at that time coming out in, in your teens? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, well, when I was younger, I certainly, when I was in middle school and like the first, you know, freshman and sophomore in high school, I, people were, I got bullied a little bit and people were not nice about it. I mean, people suspected that I was gay and I mean, people were really not nice about it. I didn't have a lot of friends before then. Um, I felt really ostracized in my community and, you know, in my school community, which was pretty small because I went to a small prep school. And so it was a pretty lonely, scary time. And when I went away to camp that summer, there was one person who was with me from my high school at the camp. And, you know, when I came out and, you know, I, I knew I had one friend when I got back home. So coming out back at home and at school felt like I could manage that. And, um, so what I did actually was when I got back, like the first week of school, I made sure that I mentioned it to someone who I knew would, would, would spread the word like wildfire. She was kind of a gossip. So <laughs> that's how I did it. I let her do my dirty work for me. Um, and yeah, it was scary, but, I, and I think the thing that was scary about it was that it was early at the time. I mean, now, you know, kids come out so young and, that is a beautiful thing. And, um, but things were different in the nineties. I was the first person in my school to come out while I was a student at the school. And there were a few gay faculty there who I remained friends with after I graduated, who said actually that it was really difficult for them because they wanted to reach out, but at the same time, they were so afraid of being perceived as a predator or, you know, having had some sort of responsibility in my being gay um, and that they didn't know what to do. So they kind of, they had to maintain a distance, which I think was really difficult for them because of course they were excited to see me find that courage at such a young age. Um, and you were you know, the first to come out in your school. Yeah. In the history of the school, I was the first person to come out while a student. Dude. Yeah. And I was there for and so that was like the beginning of my junior year, maybe. Um, so I was there for two more years, and then when, when I left, um, which is just a couple years later, when I was a freshman at college, I remember receiving a letter from a friend of mine who uh, was a couple years below me, who said he just wrote. He said, "You know, I've watching you and." what you've done has really inspired me to be honest about myself as well. And so within a year of me leaving the school, which like, and three years of me coming out, the school had a, a, a gay straight Alliance that they formed. And um, my friend Naveen came out of the closet while he was a student and he was the second one. And um, it really changed things really quickly. And that was, I have to say that was pretty formative because it really showed me um, the importance of, like how much of an impact you can have by role modeling. Certainly. I mean, that's huge. I mean, you, it sounds like your little ripple really went into waves. And what I was kind of talking about before is like representing the straight guys is kind of like, what can we do to help um, 
you know, make this conversation easier or, you know, show acceptance more. Cause for me, it's like, okay, cool. Like I have a ton of gay friends, gay coworkers. I had gay roommates in college. Like it just, it, it really wasn't a big thing for me because I was already so different that like your one difference in sexuality wasn't a big deal. It's like, okay, cool. Like where are the other, um, you know, 10 things that people hate you about. Um, so kind of on a more general, um, rather than like my kind of specific situation, what can other guys, you know, regular Joes, um, you know, kind of do or, or show that they are, you know, open to talking about it or, you know, just, you know, acknowledging or accepting that, that part of the conversation, like what, what can we do? I have to say, actually, I was really lucky in the sense that when I came out of the closet as a teenager, I happened to be surrounded by a lot of people like you. (laughs) (laughs) And um, what they did was they listened and they didn't make a big deal out of things um, in terms of difference, uh, unless I chose to make a big deal about something being different. And I don't know, they just treated me like a normal person and uh, like any of the rest of their friends. And that was really, I mean, those, those guys are still my, my, my closest friends to this day. I mean, they're some of my closest friends to this day still. And um, we actually have a Zoom hangout planned for tomorrow evening. So it's, well, uh, yeah. If we could uh, go back a little bit further, I was in high school in the late 70s. And I swear to God, in late high school, I don't think I even really had heard the word gay or homosexual. I just, that's how off the radar screen it was in, in the 70s. And you know, it was a mystery to me. It was just a mystery what I was feeling. My attractions, I assumed everybody felt this way. I just figured, hey, guys are like me now. And then later they're attracted to women. I really, me, you know, that's actually what I thought. I, you couldn't go online on the internet and look it up. <laughs> And you look for other people to talk to it about. So it was kind of like you were hiding in your own, you were hiding from yourself in a, in a way, not really. Anyway, here's something that I go through that I have trouble with. Uh, and, and really, I guess it's just great, a little bit of pain from, I get a call. Nick, I don't know if I told you this story, but I got a call about two months ago from the guy in high school, the only guy that I had sex with in, in high school. You did tell me and, about this. Yeah. And he called me out of nowhere. And I was just completely in shock that he called me because we didn't talk about what happened between us. We stopped doing what we were doing. We disappeared from each other's lives. And now he's calling me 35, 40 years later. And I'm just like, who the hell calls someone after 40 years? And he said, he calls me up and he just said, oh, yeah, I got a, I got a wife. You know, I, th- I thought he was going to call and say, I've got my dude, for, you know, husband, and let's get together. I thought that's why I was getting this call. And he says, no, I've got my wife and my three kids and my business and blah, blah, blah. And uh, he, he, I was just like, this is so bizarre. And I, I didn't know how to respond to it. And I said something to the effect of, I still remember what it was like that time we we were together. Like I remember like intimately what it was like. It was my first thing. And he just was like, Oh, you know, uh, that it was, it was, uh, it's still a memory to me, you know, 
uh, I'm very happy with my life. I'm very, you know, I have an amazing life. I'm very happy. I'm, you know, but every once in a while, I just wonder like, what would have been different if the world had been different? And that just floored me. That just floored me thinking, here's 40 years I wondered, what really, what did it mean to him compared to what it meant to me? And here I was in my own head for 40 years. I'm like, hey, he didn't hunt me down. He didn't try to find me beforehand. So clearly this didn't mean that much to him. It was probably just a thing and whatever, like, you know, whatever. But the truth is he called me after 40 years, whatever made him think to call me. And then, of course, this virus thing happened. Um, and we've, you know, now we're, we're, we're not going to see each other in person. But the other weird thing, with, there was that moment where I started texting memories to him. Just like, I remember this. I remember that. I remember the backseat of the car kind of moments. And he then said something like, dude, you got to be careful with the texts. And I'm like, oh, he's afraid his wife is going to read his phone. And I'm like, you know what? I, that to me is like a step backwards for me if I have to avoid uh, texting what I feel. I'm going to be doing that. Well, where exactly am I supposed to tell you my actual memories, tell you what I went through, tell you what's happened in my life? Am I, I mean, I can't text it to you. And that's when I realized this is going to be not any, I can't go back there. I can't go back. And I guess I'm being long winded, but the real reality is how do we deal? And Nick, I don't know how you feel about it. Maybe Adam, you have your own story, but how do we, Accept the fact that social rules and conventions robbed us of something we can't get back. I can't get that back that in high school, something natural and fun and sweet and lovely and full of you name it was deemed inappropriate, wrong, etc. And I can't get that back because I, I know I try to get it back. And in a way, Instagram today is, for me is trying to get it back. I'm befriending other guys. I'm establishing rapport and I'm telling them how I feel right at the, right out of the bat. Now I'm telling them. And on occasion, I even tell them, Hey, you're attractive. You're an attractive dude at the risk of them saying, fuck off. So I guess that's really my question. Like I try, I realize more than I want to admit that I do have a lot of sadness about the time that was lost. So there you have it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I mean, sorry. Dude. Yeah, I'm sorry. A really, a really emotional share, um, and just kind of going, you know, off of you know my my personal things is like, um, you know, I'm kind of like reverse Katy Perry on this one. Is I I kissed a guy and I did not like it, and I was you know kind of. <laughs> um, I was like, maybe I found that out and maybe that was his, his thing is like, well, you know, who knows? Maybe if I try it, I'll like it. And he tried it and he didn't like it. Um, but I have haunting memories and just kind of different things that pop up in my mind. Um, a lot. There are sometimes really, really tough situations. And then are sometimes just like, why am I thinking about this? And what I've learned to do is just say, Adam, that happened in the past, you can forgive yourself for feeling bad about this. So forgiveness for me is the main thing that gets me through that because I think we all have different things of like, oh, you know, what if my high school sweetheart and I were still together right now? You know, 
who knows? You know, I don't know how that would turn out. Probably not well. Um, it was a pretty bad relationship, but like, you know, I still, I still think about her. Like I still like, I, I know her mom, like, and we, we stay in contact. Like, you know, th- there was a really, a lot of great times that we shared, but you know, I forgive myself for, for the, um, relationship that we had because number one, I'd had no idea who I was back then. And I'm still trying to figure myself out. I don't think we really know who we are. I think that's always kind of like the goal in life is like finding out more and more who we are. And one thing that I think that, you know, how we find things out is finding out what we don't like and just saying, okay, well, I I don't like this part. I don't like this part. I like all these things and I'm open to all the things I haven't tried yet, but I, I know what I what I'm not already. Um, so that, that's my thing. So maybe a little forgiveness for yourself, Albert might help you out. Nick, um, it looks like you have something to add to this as well. The story makes me think a lot of things actually. I, I mean, in, in terms of, I mean, in terms of being present, you know, and looking back at the past, yeah, I think it's important to grieve the time lost, but also just as important, it's important to acknowledge that the experiences that we have had throughout our lives, including the unpleasant ones or the hurtful ones, are formative and they're part of what make us who we are today. And, you know, Albert, you're a beautiful person. And that's one of those things that is contributed to your current beautiful present, you know? And I think that that's, that's always a challenge because you have to, you know, of course, acknowledge what was lost, but at the same time, acknowledge that because it was lost, it's, it's, it's brought you to this place now and kind of find some gratitude for it, which is tough sometimes. It's interesting. It's not even so much a, re- a, re- a regret about what might've been with this person at all. That's not even it. It's more realizing that, so what the the role of social norms did and that's why i think probably today why i'm i like doing this podcast adam is that i'm feeling a little bit like maybe um other people who are going through something will get will get a, a shortcut through some of the things that we're discussing to maybe not waste time because i have to say I really understand. Like one of the reasons I'm so I want to get to know people. Why I've pushed so hard. Why I'm always asking nosy questions, is I'm so afraid of wasting time, because I felt my own time wasted. Now I, I didn't realize until we just discussed it today, how much a part of my personality that is. Like I want to get to happiness. I want to get to greatness, joy, fun. I want to get there as fast as I can. I want to not waste time. Maybe you know this is a, I'm sure a natural mortality thing. Realizing I'm 57, I get that, but I also think it is having realized that wasted that wasted time did cost me pain. It did, and it was really interesting, Nick, because a couple of years later, um, early in my years in New York, after I got out of Stanford, a very similar thing happened where I was very close to someone who contacted me 20 years later to say, "Dude, you know, you turned me on to classical music, but did you know I had this huge crush on you?" and I. I was like, oh man, dude, 20 years later, you tell me, 20 years later, like you're calling me now to tell me that, you know, and he was telling me all about his exploration of the Antarctic and he's a billionaire. And I'm like, dude, 20 years later, you call me up with that call, like go away. Anyway, you guys are reminding me just like 
realize that that's made me who I am too, that those things. And uh, I could, I think I could live with that. I mean, I've had some, all of us have difficult things that happen to us um, that um, we can't go back and change. And, uh, you know, I'll remember the next time I'm feeling like, damn society, screw you. How dare you tell me when to get married? I had to wait till I was in a relationship for 25 years and it didn't get married until five years ago. And I was like, why should I get married? You like, you gave me the finger. Society gave me the finger for, for uh, 20 years and said, you, you don't rate. You're not legit. Uh, oh, okay. We decided after all these years, you can get married now, dudes. It's like, well, fuck you. Like, thanks. All right. But that's angry. So the anger ain't going to work. So I'm going to ditch it. So next time I feel annoyed and angry, I'll just, I'll just re resume you two. And you'll remind me, <laughs> Hey dude, it made you who you are. All right. So I've had my therapy session. Thank you. I'll I mean, listen, at a base level, it, you, you, it's allowed you, it's brought you to a place where you can really savor this present moment. And that is something that most people spend lifetimes trying to figure out. And here you are mastering it. So I admire that. You know, the other thing that your story also, um, uh, if, if it's okay to talk about this. Yeah, let's oh. do. Sure. Um, sorry. Someone's trying to call me decline. Yeah. I, I was just getting a call from <laughs> Stockholm. Okay. Oh, hey, Alan. Um, yeah, it was. It was Alan. <laughs> Alan Gilbert, but, former music director of the New York Philharmonic. So the other no. So the other thing that it kind of brings up for me is, um, and this kind of goes back to, to Adam's question about like what can everybody do. I think we also tend to view things in this, particularly sexuality, in a binary, and really, it's on a spectrum. And people's journey through that spectrum over the course of their lives takes them. I think on a way more regular basis than people realize to places they would never expect. And that doesn't mean that they need to live in those places forever. It, it doesn't, maybe sometimes it does. And that's how you figure out how you get there. Um, but it's, I don't know. It's so easy for us to put people in boxes so quickly when we encounter them. And I find that, what I try and do at least with people who, when I, I mean, I, I know people now even who are friends of mine who are going through these moments where they're trying to figure out this aspect of themselves. And all I really find myself really wanting to do is just listen to where they are in their journey and kind of have no expectations about it and not pressure them to put themselves in a box of some sort. And cause you know, getting back to this idea of everybody being kind of different, like, that's the beauty of us as humans. And to kind of give someone the, the, a place, a safe space where they don't have to be anything, they can just be what they are. And if that's confused, that's okay. Um, I'm fi I find that has really kind of deepened my friendships with a lot of people over the years. And it's been helpful. Definitely, man. I mean, just acceptance of, you know, the, the not so good, um, you know, confusion and the spectrum, um, you know, Ryan Daniel Beck, uh, gave us the purple red scale, which I did look up and we, and we will take, you know, have a further conversation on that, but I've actually shared that with a couple other people and they're like, Oh, okay. That's interesting. Um, a lot of them are similar to me, but still it's like, you know, there's different varying ways, you know, on, on how sexual you are, how, 
you know, faithful you are or how much you're, you know, you believe in God or you believe in yourself even, you know, it's like, and that changes every day. You like, for me, like I, I say, like I wake up and I'm, I'm a different person every day. Cause I take my experiences from yesterday and the day before. And then I kind of just go over them and I'm like, Hey, based on what I know now, like, you know, I can be who I am today. So it's not always like a set in stone. Like this is always it kind of deal. It's like people have emotions and some, and like, especially right now, a lot of them are not so great. You know, we're, we're living in a tough time, but what we can do is, you know, acknowledge them, accept them, balance them within our lives. And then, you know, offer some compassion to, to our other people as well as ourselves, because we really need some more self-compassion uh, in our culture because we always, you know, like you said, stereotype, do all that, but Hey, like we're people, we need to understand that, that we're in this too. So why would we want to treat other people differently than we'd want to be treated ourselves? And why would we want to treat other people differently than the way they want to be treated? We're all in this together. So yeah, definitely on a spectrum and definitely compassion goes into that. Wow, that was really good. You asked uh, earlier, Adam, what what straight guys can do to help gay guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really you're you do it by your example, and you do it by being a welcoming, positive person who would encourage and would encourage other people to be vulnerable and encourage other people to to feel comfortable sharing with you who they are. And I think, I mean, for the most part, my experience actually. Um, you know, on Instagram, this is now I'm coming up on my on three years doing my feed. Um, the vast majority of the, the the guys that I talk to, when when I you know when they ask me about my wife, they see my wedding ring and they ask me about my wife and ask me if I have kids and I tell them I'm married to a dude. For the most part, the reaction's pretty. Oh, okay. You know, I'm you know I'm from uh, you know someplace in Oregon. We're like you know we're all f- flower children out here. Like whatever, dude. Like it's I, I should confess I'm married to a woman. And, you know whatever. It's like the joke gets turned around a little bit. I mean, in in general, the the vibe has been extremely positive and inclusive and supportive. And I think in our culture, we're seeing you know Nick. I I can't speak for you, but uh, growing up, you wouldn't see a gay character on TV at all, except a tortured older guy dying of loneliness somewhere, uh, and later of a disease. But now you see, you know, like on Schitt's Creek, you see a main character and he's getting married and his, his partner is just a right, more of a regular dude and he's more flamboyant. And it's like, there's it a little more of a, a, a broader spectrum of uh, views of people that were once put into a much narrower box. And now we're seeing a wider, a wider variety of, of um, you know, examples and of, of uh, uh, you know, it, not only for gay people, but of all, all uh, types of people so you know the the there's progressive beautiful positive forces just as we also see regressive forces and and reactionary uh steps about it but you know in general i think you know i think that's the upside of the internet you know yeah sure you could find other hateful people to collude with and hate the world with but in general i think the internet's going to make it harder for people to think that there's only one way to live and that's that's kind of a cool aspect of this technology. And it's been a cool part of doing the podcast. It's just, but Adam, it's been amazing to me how many, you know, the whole idea that some, you know, construction guy 
you know, wrote a note to, to us and it was like, I, I arrive at my construction site in the morning and listen to your podcast. And it's like the coolest thing that I do. And I love it and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that makes me feel great. And now, you know, next week they're going to have to hear about me and my, my gay issues. So anyway, it's kind of a cool, it's all, you know, I'm sure and I'll get a message afterwards and a positive, like, love you, dude. Thanks for sharing that. So that'll be sweet. Yeah. And on the flip side of that too, you know, uh, a straight guy can talk about how he, you know, folds his laundry and washes his clothes and, you know, does all this stuff, which before would seem extremely feminine. So I can be like, yeah, I really enjoy, you know, the, the different ways I wash my clothes and, and fold them and hang them. So, you know, I, I'm benefiting, I'm benefiting from this too. So it's a lot of fun and it's, and it all happened on the internet, you know, on different chat forums, like the Ironheart forum, you know, super future, super denim, and then Instagram, you know, it's like, you know, we have a lot in common and, and it doesn't matter really who you are. If we all kind of have the same passion, that's our one link that we can really uh, grow with and, you know, bond over. So, I mean, Nick, you're all about music. So, you know, the three of us love music and we love expression and art. Um, and we've talked a lot about uh, self-expression and, you know, everything and encompassing that. Um, do you have any kind of like, you know, final words on, you know, expressing yourself and, you know, just really being who you are? <laughs> you know, I, I think finding the courage to express yourself is one of the greatest acts of bravery that anybody can do in any fashion whatsoever. And while it can be terrifying, it's ultimately the most rewarding thing because it's the one thing that allows you to become closer to people. And I think that's really what we're all looking for at the end of the day is acceptance and connection and compassion. And, um, you know, you, you guys talk a lot about compassion and I just, I, you said something when you were describing yourself, Adam, you, you, you called yourself a special case or no, a special. Yeah. Special case. Yeah. Special case. And I love that. I think that, I wish that everybody could think of themselves as special cases. It's so funny. It's, it's so much more common to hear people describe themselves as black sheep and as if there's some sort of, you know, runt of the litter and special cases. I don't know. That's amazing. Self-talk. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's inspiring. And I mean, it's, it sounds so simple on the surface, but really it's really important. We're going to call this episode special cases. <laughs> Right on. Well, hey, I've really enjoyed um, our conversation here today. Albert, you want to uh, put anything at the end here or should I wrap it up? Um, no, just a thank you, um, guys, over and over again. Just the, the realization that even when you're talking to two people that you've talked to a lot, you know, Adam, you and I have talked a lot now. And Nick, you and I, boy, we've had a lot of, lot of talks that there's always room in talking to even the people that are close to you already and that you talk to a lot, there's so much more room to learn more, to renew bonds of closeness and to, to you know, remind ourselves why friendship is such an incredible investment to make. You know, we can't really underestimate the value that we get from investing in a friendship. Absolutely. Well, Nick, it was great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you guys. Right on. Well, this has been another episode of the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. 
I'm Albert Imperato. And I'm Nick Cotton. Thank you for listening. <laughs>